All right. Let's just quickly do a, a review of what we did for at, at the end last time. Turn your catechisms to paragraph 302. I'm going to ask you guys to help me out with this one here tonight because um, we got to go fast. 302. Creation has its own goodness and proper perfection, but it did not spring forth complete from the hands of the Creator. The universe was created in a state of journey toward an ultimate perfection yet to be attained, to which God is destined it. We call divine providence the dispositions by which God guides his creation toward this perfection. So, two, two aspects there. First of all, it's in a state of journey. And what's that have to do with us? Friends? Creation is made in a state of journey. What does that have to do with us? Exactly. Okay, and there's the next question is help it along to what? It says to its perfection. What is the perfection of creation? Alright, union with God. Okay, keep those two thoughts in your mind because that is the essential foundation. If you keep those in your mind, you're going to understand why Jesus Christ came and what Jesus Christ did. Okay? Paragraph 306. Melanie. God is the sovereign master of his plan. But to carry it out, he also makes use of his creatures' cooperation. This use is not a sign of weakness, but rather a token of Almighty God's greatness and goodness. For God grants his creatures not only their existence, but also the dignity of acting on their own, of being causes and principles for each other, and thus of cooperating in the accomplishment of his plan. Okay, so again, it completes what we are just saying. That man is there to cooperate, to carry on what God does. Okay, and we already talked about man as the image and likeness of God. And so now, God is acting, and we're to go ahead and act in a way that God has acted. So remember, when we're talking about image and likeness, we're not talking about a static reality, but a very real action which man is supposed to perform. Man is on this earth not to just image God by saying, well, we have an intellect and a will, but by using our intellect and our will in accordance with God's plan to bring about the perfection of his plan. Okay? Questions about that? It's very, it's extremely important. It is an impossible task, except what? Yeah, with God all things are possible. When we start to talk about the gift of God's own life, then the impossible becomes possible. We are supposed to act like God acts. And how does God act? Going back to our first class. How does God act? Love and love. He knows and he loves from all eternity. And so man also is to know and to love. And when we talk about love, what are we talking about? What is love? 
Yeah, the giving of self. So man is put in this in this place to image God as a giver of himself. And it's not just that God is giving himself to us, but that God from all eternity gives himself within himself as a gift to the Son and a Son and a Son in the Holy Spirit as a gift back to the Father in love. And so now man is called to enter into that mystery of God's own interior loving of himself. We are to love creation, but we're also called to give ourselves not only to those around us, but to whom? But to God. Okay? Paragraph 358. You've got to get through this really fast because this is all background stuff. 358. God created everything for man, but man in turn was created to serve and love God and offer all of creation back to him. To know and to love and to serve God and to offer all of creation back to him. The compendium says this, God has created everything for them, but he has created them to know, serve, and love God, to offer all of creation to the, in this world in thanksgiving back to him and to be raised up to life with him in heaven to offer all of creation to realize who he is who we are and realize that all of this is his and it should be used to bring about his plan and in doing that we lift all of creation in thanksgiving to the father we talked about that last time about the Eucharist and about how Christ fits into that Okay, um, the Pope, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, talked about this, and I've mentioned this in here before, about the Exodus, Exitus, and Reditus. And that God in creating gave forth of himself, and the culmination of his creation is man. But man is, as the Catechism is saying, and Cardinal Ratzinger was like the key writer here in this, so he's using his own his own theological thoughts is to offer all things in ready to to bring all things back to the creator. And in doing that, to unite all of creation with the creator. And not only man, but all of creation becoming one in God. Okay? But, that's the key point where Adam and Eve fit into the story. Because at that point, when God had given all of himself to man, man turned and walked away from God and did not offer all creation back to him, but sought life apart from the one who had given him life. Okay? Keep that in your mind, because if you understand that, again, you're going to understand what it is that Jesus Christ must do to save us. We're talking about Jesus Christ saving us. Oftentimes, well, we go through our Catholic life and we're just going through, you know, going through the motions and day to day as a Catholic, going to Mass on Sunday, and yes, we, we ascend to the salvation of Jesus Christ, but what does it really mean? Whenever you talk about salvation, think of it in terms of Adam and what he did not do, because Christ must do for us what we can no longer do. When we turned away from God, we lost the very gift he had given us, and it was that gift that we were to turn around and offer back to him. He gave us his life. And we were to offer his life, which is now ours, 
back to him. But man was lacking the life of God. And that's why he could not be reconciled to the Father without that gift being returned into his hands and offered to the Father. Okay? Chris, you had a question about the fall. You were saying last time that Protestants are distinct because they get wrong the concept of the love of God. And I, I forgot what you were saying, or if you could refresh my memory, just to say why. Okay, that's kind of a heavy duty concept that Protestants make the mistake in not understanding the love of God. That's kind of a pretty heavy uh, accusation. I think it was that Jack Chick track. Well, we'll get to the Jack Chick track. But I did say that to Chris and a couple of you, that this idea of God's love as a gift of himself that man is drawn into, I think is the essential underlying problem. Not that Protestants don't love God, but I think that for Luther and Calvin, they misunderstood how much God really loves us. To what extent he really loves us. That he's willing to give his own life to us. And what realities that opens up. And once we start to meditate upon that. Meditate upon the scriptures and what the church is saying here. All of a sudden I think our eyes will be open to what grace is. What our whole life as Christians is supposed to be about. Okay, So we're going to keep, keep that in our mind and keep talking about it. Um... Colossians 1.15. That's in your Bible. Melanie. I know. We got a couple Bibles in the back. Colossians 1.15. Keep going. It's in the New Testament. Pass the Gospel. 1.15. And then you got Acts. And you got Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you got Ephesians in there, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Alright? Colossians, Colossians 1 15. 1 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image. Are we getting there? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Okay, and so on. Okay, look, verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you 
What we've been just talking about. Taking all of creation and giving it back to the Father. Giving it back to God. To present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before Him. Okay? Go back to um, verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. What's interesting here that St. Paul is doing is he's contrasting the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. Because in Christ, in his body, he reconciles all of us to the divinity. Because in Christ, humanity and divinity have been joined together. So that in Christ, no longer are we separated by the fall of Adam. But in Christ, he takes us and presents us holy and blameless before God. And how does he do that? How does he take humanity and present it before the Father? Whose humanity is it? It's his humanity. He takes his humanity, which is our humanity. He takes it to himself and does with it what we could no longer do. Because he has in himself the gift of God's own life. And he can now return to the Father that Adam originally had. Paragraph 422. There it is. Chapter 2. Believe it or not. You actually got to chapter 2. Chapter 2. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. The only Son of God. Okay, as soon as they talk about the fall in the Catechism, immediately we come to the issue of Jesus Christ. Because in light of the fall, we're going to understand what Christ has done for us. Okay? And notice, He is the only Son of God. We talked about the Son of God back in Genesis and the image and likeness in which Adam was made. And in biblical language, do you remember what I said? In biblical language, image and likeness refers to what? Sonship. Yeah, to sonship. We see that in chapter 5. One who's in the image and likeness of another is said to be their son. And now you run into somebody who is the only son. In, in the image and likeness, as St. Paul talks about, in the image and likeness of the Father. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So immediately the catechism says, we believe there's only one son. And in the first paragraph talks about sons, adopted sons. We begin in Christ to participate in not only what Adam was supposed to be, but to participate in who Christ is from all eternity. And from all eternity, Christ has received the love of the Father and given the love which he has received back to the Father in the Holy Spirit. We enter into the life of God in whose image we were made in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Okay? There it is. What's the good news? One sentence. That he came so that we might receive adoption as sons. He, the word was incarnated so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is the good news of the gospel. Keep that in your mind. Because the catechism is going to talk about a number of other things. Saying, Jesus came so that. Because in a number of different ways, they're going to be saying the same reality. Revealed to us in different words. Turn to paragraph 430. 430 and 431. Mrs. Hurley? Want to read that for us? Yes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Chris, go ahead. I'll get you next. Jesus means in Hebrew, God saves. The Annunciation, the angel Gabriel gave him the name Jesus as his proper name, which expresses both his identity and his mission. Since God alone can forgive sins, it is God who, in Jesus' eternal Son made man, will save his people from their sins. In Jesus, God recapitulates all of his history of salvation on behalf of men. Okay, in Jesus, God recapitulates all of his history of salvation on behalf of men. What's that mean, to recapitulate? We express it literally to recapitulate. Redo it. Yeah, it's to redo. It's to re literally to re-head up. To take it in a sense and do it again. To bring it under another another head. As we are all under the head of Adam, receiving that which he has. In Christ, all of salvation history is redone, re-headed up. More than just redone in the sense that we leave what was done before behind, but that it's taken up again and brought into the presence of God. Okay, as the fathers say, when Christ entered into the Jordan River, he entered into the floods of into the flood of Noah. When he entered into the Jordan River, he crossed the Jordan with Joshua and Israel. When he went through the Jordan River, he crossed the Red Sea. Reheading up all of salvation history to give it, in a sense, a participation in his own life. Notice the next paragraph. In the history of salvation, God was not content to deliver Israel out of the house of bondage by bringing them out of Egypt. He also saves them from their sin. I'm pointing this out to you because there's two aspects here which are essential. That Christ comes not only to save, I think our error maybe is the opposite of what they're pointing out. Our error is Christ comes to save our souls. But also Christ comes to save the material world. And to reunite the immaterial, the spiritual, with the material once again. To make the material reality do what it was supposed to do in the beginning. Namely, to shine forth with the life of God. That God had poured his life into creation. And creation was to reflect the image of God. And in Christ, all of salvation is made present again. All of the stories of salvation history are made present. So that not only can we be baptized to receive the life of God when we're in the church here 2,000 years after Christ. But when Israel crossed the Jordan River, they are 
mysteriously, beyond our understanding, given a participation in, the doors of life are open to them so the possibility of their salvation can become present to them. The work of Jesus Christ extends not only from the time of Christ, but the work of Jesus Christ extends through all of creation, and all men are given a possibility of participation in it. Okay? Hold on to that, because we... What the Catechism is doing here is laying side by side the material and the spiritual world. And we've got to get that right. We've got to get the balance right to understand what creation was made for. Okay? 457. Notice the language. The Word became flesh for us Again, Jesus became incarnate. What did it say before? So that what? That we might receive adoption as sons. The Word became flesh for us in order to, so that, to save us by reconciling us with God, who loved us and sent His Son to be an expiation for our sins. The Word became flesh for us in order to save us. And how are we saved? By, giving, by being reconciled with God. Being brought back together with God. When we talk about being adopted as sons, we're talking about coming back into union with God. Entering back into His family. Receiving something which God has. Okay? And a son receives what from his father when he is born? He receives his nature. Okay? We, when we are reborn into the image and likeness of God, receive now from our Father, our Heavenly Father, the gift of a participation in his own divine nature. The Word became flesh for us in order to save us by reconciling us with God, who loved us and sent His Son to be an expiation for our sins. The Father has sent His Son as the Savior of the world, and He is revealed, and He was revealed to take away sins. Sick, our nature demanded to be healed, fallen to be raised up, dead to rise again. We had lost the possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in... Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Do they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it, since humanity was in so, in so miserable and unhappy a state? The word became flesh so that, again, a third time, so that we might know God's love. To become adopted children is the same as to come to know God's love. And what is God's love? What does it mean when we talk about the love of God? I know I've been hammering this at you guys from the first class. But this is the key. This is the reason. Our salvation depends upon our knowledge of the love of God. And the love of God is God's own life being poured out as a gift to us. 
that we might know that God loves us so much that he would not spare his own life, but give it for us. Jesus Christ died upon the cross in order to give us life because it's who God was from all eternity. And now God is present in the flesh, giving his life to us. The yeah. thing I was reading last night, I can't remember what it was. St. Paul talked about the whole creation groaning. Mm-hmm. What book is that in? Romans. Romans. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Leah. All creation groans eager at anticipation for the coming of the... Let's turn there. What is it? Are you at the verse? Romans 8. 20-something. Yeah, turn there. Yeah. Romans. Go back to Acts and then Romans. Okay, Gospels and then Acts and then Romans. Romans 8. What else? Knowledge of the love of God. What else? 
mirror image of God. Oh, then we might know God's love and the image. Okay, fine. So you see, we keep repeating the same thing in different ways. Okay, go ahead. Start it again. Okay. The Word became flesh to make us partakers of the divine nature. For this is why the Word became man, and the Son of God became the Son of man, so that man, by entering into communion with the Word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. The only God. <laughs> this is what they're saying is the gospel message. God became man so that we might become God. Now you guys think we're nuts yet? <laughs> Keep going, Melanie. It's Mormon. Just say that again. It's Mormon. This time Mormonism. <laughs> Melanie already said that. Repeat that sentence. That's not Mormonism. That's St. Athanasius. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us shares in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he, made man, might make men gods. Taking up St. John's expression, the word became flesh, the church calls incarnation the fact that the Son of God assumed a human nature in order to accomplish our salvation in it. There. Why did it, why did the Son of God, the eternal word of God, become man? To take up our human nature and to accomplish in it our salvation. To accomplish in it our salvation. When we talk about the Incarnation, think, Jesus Christ has taken our, our humanity and walked it through the gates of heaven. He has taken up our humanity and done with it what God made it to do in the beginning. That by the power of God, man might be joined to God. When we look at Jesus Christ, we look at who we're supposed to be. In Jesus Christ, humanity is taken up and made a partaker in divinity. And that is exactly what is supposed to happen with me and you. Jesus Christ is not only our model, he's not only our example, he is sacramentally doing with us what we were supposed to do from the beginning. And that is why when we talk about baptism, we are not baptized like Christ. We are baptized into Christ. Our Catholic faith, everything about the Catholic faith, is about being joined <clears throat> to Jesus Christ. So that we can say that what he has done we have now done in him. Our whole life is about that. Mark? Uh, Aquinas has this little G-Gods and Athanasius has this big G-God. Mm -hmm. Referee. Which God are we? Big <laughs> I don't know. At this point, I think we have to stand and gaze upon, imagine, meditate upon the love of God and what that really means. And then start imagining what God is going to do with us. And as the scriptures say, no eye is seen. Let your imagination go wild because you can't even imagine it. 
the gift that God has prepared to give us is beyond our wildest imaginations. So, I don't know. And the fathers don't know. And in some sense, the church doesn't know. Because we stand then awaiting eternity when God's love will be revealed to us, which will so far surpass any concept of love that we have. All we can do is use our concept of love, our limited concept, and start to apply that to God. And right there, it's mind-blowing. But when we start to use the concept of God's love as it is, it's so far beyond any concept of love that, hum that humans have at this point. It's, it's beyond us. Okay? And that is what we must do for the rest of our lives, is imagine what God has prepared for us, reading the scriptures, diving into it, meditating upon that gift to prepare ourselves to receive that gift. The sacraments. Every sacrament is about the same thing. Participation in God's own life. When we're baptized, what do we receive? Into our souls. Grace. The Holy Spirit. When we receive Holy Communion, what do we receive? Grace. When we're confirmed, what do we receive? Grace. God is shoving His life into us from every possible direction if we would just open our lives to it. Okay? Any questions? Yes. How do we get in track? How do Protestants see this? I mean, what do they. Ah, what's their concept? All right, let's deal with that for just a second. I can't, we can't get into too much. But, again, when we, talk about, when we talk about the different Protestant denominations, of course, there's different avenues and different perspectives, okay? But I would say that overall, we can, we can say, following Luther, that man is, in a sense, left in that fallen state. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, does for us what we can't do, fine. But here's the difference. For Catholics, the Son of God assumed a human nation in order to accomplish our salvation in it. Our human nature is to be totally restored, saved from the fall. Okay? And that's why I said I think that... A key divide that we can start to look at between a Protestant concept of salvation and our concept of salvation is based upon the love of God. Because we believe that God loves us so much that he will give even his own life to us to make us truly participators in who he is. That that's what he made us for. Any thoughts on that? Have you ever, have you ever heard the uh, acronym for grace? The What's that? Made up acronym. What's that? God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay. Yeah. Melanie, you shook your head. Well, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, yes. but I just, I don't, for, regarding the Protestant perspective, mm -hmm. I don't think you're completely okay. on point, but I'm not going to. No, I, I mean, give it to me. Come on, help us. We want to understand. Well, but there is sanctification in yeah. the Protestant belief, but this idea of 
men becoming God or gods is completely just... Yeah, it's not there. So that's what I'm saying. We're hitting right now at the very center of a division because the division is based in grace. Okay, but okay. ontologically yeah. speaking, man yeah. is man. We become, yes, God saves us and makes us perfect, but that doesn't change our nature as human beings. Yes, and that's, and that's exactly it. In the epistle of Peter, we are to be made partakers in the divine nature. Okay? And so, this is a point that I'm struggling with myself, to understand exactly from Luther's perspective, how man can really be sanctified. Because the grace of God, to my understanding, my limited theological background, to my understanding, the grace of God does not come and become an interior, interior restorative principle in man's nature. Okay, but man is that famous, as the, I'll just use the famous quote, man is a pile of dung covered in snow. Jesus Christ is snow, we are left as dung. And so, and so, so Luther says that in every act I sin, because I'm left in my fallen state. But you're looking at Luther, and I mean, when he talks about that snow-covered dunghill, whatever, mm -hmm. that's his image of justification. Right. Why we are saved by justification alone. Yeah. There is, though, in Luther, um, the idea of sanctification. It just kind right. of got brushed under the rug because justification was the big the thing point. that yeah. they were arguing about. But he doesn't say that it's just okay to remain that way. But right. You're right, it's not Yeah, I know, and I'm not saying he's going to say that it's okay to remain, in a sense, immoral. Although there's some funny quotes in, in there's some funny texts of his that might seem to indicate that. Yeah. But that it seems to me, again, limited understanding, that yeah, we're called to imitate Christ, and so in some sense naturally become better, mm -hmm. but for Catholics, we're to supernaturally become better. That we are to be made not only human, that our destiny is to be made sons of God, that our destiny is to be elevated beyond who we are. Okay, to be made partakers in the divine nature, as St. Peter says. It really gets down to the nature of the incarnation. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, that's the essential. That's, and that's why right here in the center of the Catechism's talk on, on the incarnation, we're dealing with this point. Because we're dealing in Christ, when we look, well, look, let's keep going because we're going to get to even better stuff. So, 470. We can keep talking about this, so as we go through these points, we're going to keep juggling this issue in our minds. 470. Yeah, Chris, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that I've heard before that the Protestants can't constitute, it's essentially sort of a form of neo-Gnosticism. They can't comprehend the fact that they don't see, they can't see anything beyond mankind's fallen state. The idea that Okay, you know, alright, let me just cut you off because here's the thing, is let's focus, I want to focus on what the church teaches because by understanding that, we're going to be able to apply that better. So let's keep going with this and we'll be able to come back. 470. Because human nature was assumed, not absorbed, in the mysterious union of the incarnation, the church was led over the course of centuries to confess the full reality of Christ's human soul with its operations of intellect and will, knowing and loving and of his human body, 
In parallel fashion, she had to recall on each occasion that Christ's human nature belongs as his own to the divine person, the Son of God, who assumed it. Everything that Christ is and does in this nature derives from, from quote, one of the Trinity, from his identity. The Son of God, therefore, communicates to his humanity his own personal mode of existence in the Trinity. Now, what is that mode of existence in the Trinity? Is that he stands in relationship to the Father and to the Spirit. And he's now communicating that to his human nature. So that now, in his human nature, a man is standing in the place of God. Receiving from all eternity the love of God and giving that love back. What Adam was made for in the beginning. He communicates to his humanity his own personal mode of existence in the Trinity. In his soul, as in his body, Christ thus expresses humanly the divine ways of the Trinity. The Son of God, pay attention to this, the Son of God worked with human hands. He thought with a human mind. He acted with a human will and with a human heart he loved. Born of the Virgin Mary, he has truly been made one of us, like to us in all things except sin. He did with our hands what we were supposed to do. He's done with our heart what we were supposed to do. He's done with our intellect what we were supposed to do. He has put us into a place to know and to love God as he has known and loved God. I said that the love of God is the essential point. Because all we can do is stand and wonder that the gift of God is that great. That what God has been doing from all eternity, he has created man to come in and do. Okay? Ria's got a question. Yep, Leah, go ahead. Um, can I bring this back to the uh, Protestant point? Uh, yes. Okay, I'm just trying to grab a. Um, let's read one more paragraph. Okay. 464. 464. Sorry, we went backwards there. The unique and altogether singular event of the incarnation of the Son of God does not mean that Jesus Christ is part God and part man, nor does it imply that he is the result of a confused mixture of the divine and the human. He became truly man while remaining truly God. Jesus Christ is true God and true man. During the first centuries, the church had to defend and clarify this truth of faith against the heresies that falsified it. And then they go into all the major heresies that Dr. Marshner covered. I recommend that you guys go back and listen to that series online. Listen to that. What we can say about Jesus Christ, we can say about a man. A man rose from the dead on Easter morning. God died upon the cross on Good Friday. What we can say about Jesus Christ, we can say about God. What we say about Jesus Christ, we can say about man. That man has come into union with the Father. That man walks out of a tomb on Easter morning. And if a man has done it, then it's possible for us as men 
also to do it. In Jesus Christ, he has made something a possibility which was not possible before. However he did it, if we can get that, we can do it too. It's possible for us. And what does he have but the life of God? And that's what the sacraments are about. To get us into that action. To get us into Christ. So that on Easter morning, we walk out of the tomb. A man will rise from the dead. Because a man has risen from the dead. Okay, that's the gospel message. That now for a man, it's possible what only God can do. God became man that man might become God, St. Athanasius says. Leah. Um, this is kidding. Um, okay. I, um, Because matter doesn't matter. 
Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And Edmund, uh, who remember Edmund, the black guy that comes, he's going to come back. So he's just up in uh, with his mom right now. But that's what he says. He converted. He says the problem I had when I was a Catholic was with the incarnation. I, I couldn't. I, he says, looking back on it, I had a problem with matter. And that's why I'm saying here, this balance between the spirit and the flesh is, is essential. If we can get that right, we can start to understand things like the Eucharist. This material thing before us is communicating God to us. And it's weird. Unless we have the love of God as our foundation, then all things are possible. Then not only does God share his life with us, but he is taking a piece of bread and communicating to the most foundational, basic things we have in our life, the most elevated mysteries that we can imagine. All of creation is to be divinized when it is brought back into union with its creator. Okay? Melanie, you got a comment on that? No. You sure? Let's go back to Kesslet. Okay. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, 470. Okay, 470. We're going to read five paragraphs in a row. So we'll put 470 to 475. Keeping in mind what we had. You're right. So go down to the bottom of 470, that little quote there at the bottom. We'll read that and then we'll keep going. The Son of God worked with human hands. He thought with the human mind. He acted with the human will and with the human heart he loved. Born of the Virgin Mary, he has truly been made one of us, like us, like to us in all things except sin. Apollinarius of Laodicea asserted that in Christ the divine word had replaced the solar spirit. Against this error, the church confessed that the eternal Son has assumed a rational human soul. Keep going, Melanie. This human soul that the Son of God assumed is endowed with a true human knowledge. Just, as, as we're going here, just remember, we're talking about rectifying the problem. So now, if Christ assumes all these things that man has, he's doing with them what they're supposed to do. Okay. As such, this knowledge could not in itself be unlimited. It was exercised in the historical conditions of his existence in space and time. This is why the Son of God could, when he became man, increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, and would even have to inquire for himself about what one in the human condition can learn only by experience, from experience. This corresponded to the rea reality of his voluntary emptying of himself, taking the form of the slave. But at the same time, this truly human knowledge of God's Son expressed the divine life of his person. The human nature of God's Son, not by itself, but by its union with the Word, knew and showed forth in itself everything that pertains to God. Such is first of all the case with the intimate and immediate knowledge that the Son of God made man has of his Father. The Son, in his human knowledge, also showed the divine penetration he had into the secret thoughts of human hearts. By its union to the divine wisdom in the person of the Word incarnate, Christ enjoyed in, in, in his human knowledge the fullness of understanding of the eternal plans he had come to reveal. What he admitted to not knowing in this area, he elsewhere declared himself not sent to reveal. Similarly, at the Sixth Ecumenical Council, Constantinople III in 681, 
The church confessed that Christ possesses two wills and two natural operations, divine and human. They are not opposed to each other, but cooperate in such a way that the word made flesh willed humanly in obedience to his Father, all that he had decided divinely with the Father and the Holy Spirit for our salvation. Christ's human will does not resist or oppose, but rather submits to his divine and almighty will. Okay, so the church is, is adamant in this first few hundred years to maintain a proper relationship between divinity and humanity. Because as I forget what saint is, early church father that says, what Christ did not assume, Christ did not save. Okay? So he does with our human will what it's supposed to do. He does with our intellect what it's supposed to do. What does that mean? What didn't he assume? There's nothing. He assumed that he, he took us on, but in the early church, all these debates about whether Christ had a human will or not. And the church is saying he had to have a human will because he had to do with our will what it was supposed to do. Okay? And in Christ, the will of man follows perfectly the will of God in the image of the Creator. Restored like Adam before the fall. Okay? And, and it's here. If you turn one page over to page two, 122, or paragraph uh, 484, right there. What person do we run into? Mary. Mary. Again, at the heart, at the center of the question about the fall, we come to Christ. And at the center of the realization of what Christ has done for our humanity, we come to Mary. Okay? Let me read you. Uh, I gave you that handout from Jack Chick back there. You guys can take it home and read that. It's a lot of fun. I got another quote from him that is also fun. And so I'll read it to you. It's a little shorter. Central is their Virgin Mary, who has been elevated by papal decree to the status of a goddess. Nothing in the Bible suggests that the biblical Mary is anything else but a devout, ordinary Jewish woman. Rome has transformed her into a sinless celestial being. This is sheer blasphemy, making her equal with Jesus in the minds of the hundreds of millions of Roman Catholics around the world. In fact, Jesus has been reduced to a wheat wafer in the Eucharist, and the practical focus of their worship is now upon Mary, Queen of Heaven, rather than Jesus as King and Savior. Now, there you go. Now, what can we say about that? What can we say about that? First of all, paragraph 487. What the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ. What the Catholic Church believes about Mary is based upon what it believes about Christ. What the Catholic Church believes about you is based upon what it believes about Christ. What the Catholic Church believes about humanity is based upon what it believes about Christ. What the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ, and what it teaches about Mary illumines in turn its faith in Christ. What are they talking about? Why are they putting those, things, those two things side by side? What it believes about Mary is based upon what it believes about Christ. What are they, what are they talking about? She suffered the pain as Jesus did. Okay. 
Look, what have we been talking about? What is it? What did we just come off of in the Catechism? The incarnation, which is the mystery of the union of God and man. And immediately the Catechism turns to Mary and says what it believes about Mary is based upon what it believes about Jesus Christ. What are they saying? They're saying that the Immaculate Conception, for instance, follows it's a, it's a, it's a consequence of being the mother of God. Not only a consequence of being a mother of God, but a consequence of God's love. Did God ever plan for us to sin? Did He ever desire us to sin? No. To fall? No. No. Did God make us with a fallen human nature? No. Does He want us to have a fallen human nature? No. No. What the Catholic Church believes about Mary, it believes about Mary because it believes that God loved us so much that He never wanted us to sin in the first place. And His plan for me and you is that we never sin. That his plan is that what happens to Mary is what he has had as our plan. It is the plan of Jesus Christ to restore humanity to divinity. There's something right about what Jack Chick says in his, in his stupid little quote. The Catholic Church, no, the Catholic Church has elevated Mary to a goddess. Let me quote you, St. Athanasius. God became man that man might become God. He's right in some way in his perception. He sees something about what, about what we believe about Mary. But his mistake is that the Catholic Church hasn't elevated her. God has elevated her to the side into the very life of the Trinity. And he has planned that not only for Mary, but for each one of us. We see in Mary... The plan which God has for all of humanity. No, Any so thoughts? If he doesn't recognize, um, um, you know, in calling the Eucharist uh, a wafer, he doesn't recognize uh, possibilities um, of divine, divine power in transforming. Act of that's that's for sure, and also yeah. in transforming the uh, the congregation because the Holy Ghost is working not only on the Eucharist, but is working on the um, congregation in making them the body of Christ. Absolutely, totally transformative, totally transformative. Look at four ninety two, and we're going to finish with this. Uh, uh, we have two paragraphs, four ninety two and four ninety four. The splendor of an entirely unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instant of her conception comes wholly from Christ. She is redeemed in a more exalted fashion by reason of the merits of her Son. How is that possible? Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, has somehow healed Mary at the moment of her conception. What? Who knows how many years? 20, 30 years before. No, four, four more than that. Okay? Then at the moment of Mary's conception, she was healed by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. How is that possible? Everything's possible with God. Well, yeah, everything is possible with God. Remember, when we read that quote in the Catechism, that in Christ, all of salvation history is recapitulated. Do we believe that Moses is saved? Yes. 
Christ went to preach to those who were awaiting the just men of the Old Testament. Do we believe that Elijah was taken into heaven? Yeah. What we believe about Mary is absolutely connected with what Jesus Christ has done because without him, our humanity is left without that which with it, what it was made with, the divine life. And from the moment of her conception, God poured his divine life into her as he pours his divine life into each one of us at the moment of our baptism. Okay, 494. At the announcement that she would give birth to the Son of the Most High without knowing man by the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary responded with the obedience of faith, certain that with God nothing will be impossible. Behold, I am thy handmaid, I am the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done unto me according to your word. Thus giving her consent to God's word, Mary becomes the mother of Jesus, espousing the divine will for salvation wholeheartedly, without a single sin to restrain her. She gave herself entirely to the person and to the work of her son. She did so in order to serve the mystery of redemption with him and to be dependent upon him by God's grace. The two shall become one. She gave herself wholly to him. As St. Irenaeus says, being obedient, she became the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. Hence, not a few of the early fathers gladly assert the knot of Eve's disobedience was, unite, was untied by Mary's obedience. What the virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith. Comparing her with Eve, they call her Mary, the mother of the living, and frequently came death through Eve, life through Mary. St. Mary's goes on to say, just as the devil, the fallen angel, spoke the, the evil word into the ear of Eve and she conceived death, so Gabriel speaks the word of God into Mary's ear and she conceives life. Okay? Remember that. Mary, the reality that we believe about Mary. Mary was assumed into heaven. We're supposed to be assumed into heaven. We're not making Mary out to be anything more than what God has planned for you and me from the very beginning to call us up to a gift of his own life into his own life to share with us for all eternity who he is. Okay? I'm over time, so let's call it good and pass uh, next Tuesday. Don't forget about this Saturday also with Brendan for the history series. And now when he talks, he said, the Spirit of the Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was the beginning, now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. John the Beloved, pray for us. You know, in the box, he said, Heal the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.